You are listening to highlights from One Plant Podcast interview with KC Legacion of Degrowth.info. This podcast is supported by the Jan Marshawski Foundation. You're part of this group, Degrowth. Just explain to us, for those who don't know, what is Degrowth and how can we get there? Yeah, so degrowth is a word with many meanings, but one way I would describe it is perhaps starting with the history. So degrowth as an idea has intellectual roots in the environment's critiques of the 60s and 70s found in landmark works like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, The Club of Rome's Limits to Growth Report, Nicholas Georgescu Rogan's The Entropy Law and the Economic Process, which was, I guess, a seminal piece of economic theory that applied the laws of thermodynamics to the economy, which was very influential for ecological economics, which is intertwined with degrowth. But degrowth was first formulated in 1972 by French philosopher André Gors in a public debate where he used the term decroissance to question whether planetary stability was compatible with capitalism. And yeah, in the 70s, then this idea of degrowth or decroissance really began to spread through France and then other countries in Europe. And then it really garnered broader international attention in 2008 at the first international degrowth conference in Paris. And that's where the word degrowth was actually translated into English. And so, yeah, at the core of degrowth is just this critique of capitalism and then this critique of the growthism that lies at the center of capitalism, this, this pursuit of infinite economic growth on a planet with finite resources. And so therefore, one way I would define degrowth is as this collection of ideas and practices that one, critique societies that are driven by this need to pursue infinite economic growth and to cultivate alternative ways of living that center around socio-ecological well-being. And another thing I would say at the core of degrowth is this facilitation of a number of interconnected socio-ecological transformations that lead to conditions in which people have the autonomy to create their own versions of the good life, whatever that may be, so long as it's within interpersonal and uh, biophysical limits. So that's one way to describe degrowth, I'd, I'd say. And I think that broadly, it's a, a utopia I would love for us to get there. And the real question is how, and what are the more compelling examples that have shown us how we can get there? What we've seen is we've never really seen a full circular economy. We've never really seen, uh, I haven't seen with my own eyes, a degrowth model. Totally. So degrowth and strategy is actually like a very robust area of debate right now. And um, there's actually a book coming out, co-edited by some of my peers at degrowth.info. I keep on the lookout for that, I guess. Degrowthers draw on a number of different theories of transformation, theories of change. Eric Rollin is someone who's been very influential in this way of thinking. And specifically, not to get too technical, but there's these symbiotic ways of change. So collaborating with existing institutions, large-scale social institutions to try to nudge systems towards more ecologically conscious and socially equitable ways of existence. There's also these interstitial approaches, which are more the bottom up things. So finding the cracks in existing systems and building alternatives within these cracks. And then there's also the ruptural approaches, which in moments of crises, using moments of crises to then center degrowth. And so I guess concrete examples of all of these small scale practices like community fridges or neighborhood childcare networks housing co-ops, local time banks, all of these local um, small-scale practices, I would say are part of degrowth. And to me, those would fall under the interstitial approach in which we have these autonomous grassroots actors building alternatives 
at the ground level. Degrowth also includes large-scale policy proposals, so proposals for you know, federal care income, so for unpaid care work that is done at the home, minimum and maximum income, reduced working hours. So these are, I guess, these um, symbiotic approaches. So collaborating with state or federal governments to enact these policies that are more aligned with seed growth futures. And then in terms of structural approaches, you know, we can look at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, where you had all these mutual aid networks spring up because people were not unable to get the access to resources that they needed to live. And so all these mutual aid networks emerged from this rupture of existing systems. Yeah, I, I, I would say all of that embodies degrowth. In terms of utopia and how do we get there, something I've seen in the literature that is this idea of a concrete utopia or a now-utopia. So, you know, how can we fundamentally change how we're living, like, literally right now? And how can that transformation be a part of these larger, more abstracted transformations that are part of degrowth? And that's something I also found very compelling about this topic or this thing is that it truly does range from like the large scale political macro social systems to even discussions of like small scale, intimate, personal like transformations. And it acknowledges that transformation needs to happen across all of these scales, um, across all sectors. And in terms of more discussions of strategy, I would definitely say check out the book <laughs> coming up, Degrowth and Strategy. <laughs> this idea really reminds me about donor economy, a concept proposed by Dr. Kate Rayworth. And I really feel these two concepts complement one another. So I wonder if you have looked into their relationships. And for me personally, I'm invested in the circular economy. And I wonder what circular economy might do to promote degrowth. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I came across the donut economy concept years before I came across degrowth, but they're definitely very much related. I think Kate Raworth even mentions degrowth in some of her publications, though I think she prefers the term agrowth, but don't quote me on that. But yeah, I think they're very much aligned with each other because, you know, degrowth is all about reimagining new ways of um, structuring the economy, right? Like as opposed to a, a neoliberal market economy, what are other kind of, you know, care economy, solidarity economy, circular economies, and this concept of just this social foundation, meeting the social foundation within like an ecological ceiling, I think is, yeah, very core to degrowth schools of satisfying needs in minimally harmful ways and in fact, regenerative ways in terms of ecological processes. And for, in terms of circular economy, yeah, there's actually one article from a degrowth perspective that looks at the circular economy, critiques it because if I remember correctly, the, the authors are writing that it's not politicized enough. You know, it's great from a material and energetic throughput concept. It's really great to think about reusing materials and trying to reduce the amount of waste or even like reconceptualizing our understanding of what waste is. But if that new understanding of the economy is not paired with like an explicit political framing, then it's liable or subject to be co-opted by capitalistic discourses. And so I think a degrowth perspective on the circular economy would say that a circular economy is a necessary part of degrowth transformations. But as of anything, it also has to be a it has to be politicized since degrowth is ultimately uh, at its core like a political project as well. So another question that I have is that I try to talk about degrowth with my family, but I don't know how to actively engage them about these concepts because even for me, this idea is new and to be honest, a bit abstract. Do you have any recommendations for people who want to talk about degrowth with their loved ones? I guess in general, just meeting people where they're at in terms of, I guess, their level of like political consciousness or ecological consciousness and just meeting them where they're at 
there and then just providing concrete examples that they can relate with. Perhaps there, if there's like a, a restaurant that your family likes to go to or something or, or, or a grocery store and that frequently they throw out all this food waste and that this is just an instance in which resources that are being used that are just ultimately going to waste and not fulfilling needs and perhaps using that as a way to open up conversations about transforming larger scale economic thought and practices. I also think degrowth is like necessarily a contentious word. People talk about how degrowth, like there's, there's a degrowth, a post growth, there's this a growth. Degrowth, at least currently is like the stable word because it's so antithetical to neoliberal discourses and, sub, and therefore it's unlikely to be co-opted by capitalism. But I think, yeah, just centering the idea that degrowth ultimately is about socio-ecological well-being, I think is one way of uh, approaching this. I think it's also important for me to say too that degrowth is not without its critiques. And I think some very rightful critiques that um, others may bring up in terms of introducing this concept to people. One critique, common critique is whether degrowth equates to a recession, which is not necessarily the case because reducing the GDP of a nation's economy is not necessarily a goal of degrowth, though the topic of GDP is another contested thing in degrowth discourses. But yeah, at the core of degrowth, there's just this planned downscaling of the economy. And beyond reducing how much we produce, consume, or extract also lies this need to fundamentally transform our understanding of what the economy is. And that, that is also like a core of degrowth. Um, and another common critique comes from the relationship between the, the global North and the global South. And because degrowth originated in Europe and still primarily remains a Eurocentric concept, a lot of people as scholars, especially from the global South highlight that like there's the threat that degrowth, degrowth runs the risk of becoming another concept that uh, perpetuates colonial continuities in which uh, the global north established a dominance over the global south by setting the agenda on ways of existence and global affairs once again. And um, degrowth scholars also respond to this critique by highlighting that degrowth should be seen not as like the end-all be-all, this is the framework that the entire world needs to operate on because obviously that is not the case. Instead, it should be seen as one, one movement, one idea that is in alignment with you know a wide array of other ideas and movements in the global south that already exist. So, you know, Buen Vivir in Latin America is uh, uh, one example. Ubuntu in South Africa, Eco Swaraj, I think in India is all these other concepts from the global south that are in very much in alignment with degrowth. That degrowth just seeks to be a partner with, I guess. And yeah, just to this last critique to the concept of the, of the pluriverse, I think is especially useful. Arturo Escobar talks about this pluriverse of this wide range of, as I understand it, a wide range of worldviews and just ways of existence, living together in collaboration. And yeah, degrowth just seeks to be one, one concept within this pluriverse of ideas that ultimately seeks to facilitate this transformation towards collective flourishing and liberation. And I, I would say, at least from my perspective, degrowth primarily is something for rich and industrialized countries in the global north. And specifically like the wealthy portions of the global North, because once again, I think context specificity is another thing that is really important to talk about or to keep in mind when talking about degrowth, because obviously not all things need to degrow. And that is something that degrowthers try to emphasize, right? I mean, here in the United States, for example, the prison industrial complex or the petrochemical industry, these are things that do need to degrow, but other things, right? Like community owned institutions or participatory democracy, these are things that do need to grow or expand or deepen. And in terms of what 
does degrowth mean for the global south? There are some thoughts that degrowth in the global north would facilitate self-determination in the global south because the global north is no longer, ex you know, having this extractive relationship. And there's also critique to that, once again, saying that degrowth in the global north can and will have repercussions on the global south, just given the interconnected nature of our globalized realities. And so I guess, yeah, just to that, I think context specificity is just also important for you kids. Who's to say how one, how degrowth in one sector, another sector in another country. But yeah, I think also a part of this too is international solidarity. I think labor is another thing that is important to degrowth. And I think labor organizing across countries in an international context is very important. And so I think there also is some degree of just understanding that there is a need for international solidarity in terms of working class people coming together and organizing to better their living conditions. And another element of your other project is about social media. And I think that there's a kind of through line. It's about both of these modes of thinking. It's like a deceleration and not growth is not positive. Too much communication or too much akin in terms of social media give rise to, as we've seen, a lot of negative communications. And so tell us what you're doing that with that project and you've analyzed different social media platforms. Yes. Yeah, so my master's research focuses on looking at social media through a degrowth lens. And there's actually an entire subfield of degrowth scholarship that's called degrowth and technology, which looks at technology's role in these socio-ecological transformations pursued by degrowthers. And specifically, I'm using concepts in the literature called conviviality, which was first formulated by Ivan Illich, an Austrian-born priest and critic philosopher um, who, who wrote a number of texts in the 1970s that sharply uh, analyzed industrial ways of life. And so in the 1973 book, Tools for Conviviality, he introduces this concept as a means of critiquing. Uh, his, his main argument throughout his work is that the tools, which he uses to refer to anything that is designed and created to satisfy a need, which includes like literal objects like a hammer to social institutions like a hospital. These are all things that we design and create in order to satisfy a need. Illich's argument is that tools oftentimes are surpassing a boundary beyond which they begin to produce more harm than good. And so he goes into a lot more technical, uh, I guess, theoretical detail about what conviviality entails. He calls it a multiple balance. So there's five different balances that all need to be maintained in order for the quality of conviviality to be emerge. And so I'm looking at, at social media and concretely, I, I collected data on six social media, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Decidim, Mastodon, and iNaturalist. And I'm using this lens of conviviality to analyze the different components of social media. And I guess one of the main conclusions of my research is that yeah, I, I guess I'm offering this new understanding of social media that is more aligned with degrowth transformations because the ways we perceive of something impacts the ways we relate to it. And current perceptions of social media are dominated by corporate narratives. But in my research, I'm formulating this concept of a convivial social media ecosystem. So I'm invoking the concept of a media ecosystem, which is you know a commonly used analogy. But in, in doing that, I'm trying to be explicitly ecological by bringing in the concepts of ecosystem structure and ecosystem function. So much like how ecosystem structure refers to the biotic and abiotic components that relate to one another in a given context, social media structure or ecosystem structure looks at the different components of, of that make up a social media. So in other words, my understanding of social media is broken down into these distinct components. Social media's business model, 
like its interface design, its affordances, its network topology, its scale, its, oh gosh, technologies, like the technology that underpin it. And so I'm looking at these concrete components through the lens of conviviality and making analytical claims about these types of components are more convivial or more aligned with the degrowth transformation. And these types of components are not. So for example, like a, a surveillance capitalistic business model that is characteristic of Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, in which their main mode of profit generation is based off of collecting data on user activity, analyzing that through a number of algorithms, and then making predictions about our behavior and then selling our attention to marketers and advertisers. That type of business model is distinctly not aligned with degrowth because it, you know, feeds this sensationalization that we see on social media, this polarization on social media, because it's all about accumulating attention so we can gain more likes, more views, more profit. This growthism is very apparent. Alternative to that, you also have these counter-hegemonic business models like on, on Mastodon, for example, which is a decentralized and federated Twitter alternative where ads are banned on Mastodon. Surveilling capitalism would not be possible because ads are like a crucial part of this business or this, you know, political economic arrangement and ads have literally are not possible on Mastodon. And so I guess in that way, and instead what you see on Mastodon, which tricky to describe how that's different from Twitter, but just really briefly, it's as opposed to one website or when we go on Twitter.com, we are accessing an interface that is hosted on, you know, a central hub of servers that is owned by Twitter, the corporation. In contrast, there is no singular Mastodon website or instance. Instead, Mastodon is made up of this universe of independent and autonomous websites that are hosted on infrastructure that are owned and operated by, or most often owned and operated by the administrators of that instance. And so it's like similar to Reddit in which there's all these autonomous subreddits, but now think of each subreddit was actually its own like website on its own infrastructure, as opposed to going back to Reddit. And so all that to say, there are some going back to business model, there are some many Mastodon instances that are actually just community funded. So there's like this crowdfunding aspect of it where people are, you know, directly supporting the administrators of this instance because they directly benefit from this and they want to support it. So yeah, profit coming from the people as opposed to profit coming from exploitation. So that those are the kinds of things I'm thinking about in terms of these types of components are more degrowth aligned these ones are not. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights from this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Plan Podcast or learn more about involuntary projects, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.